So 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. I'll read this and then pray. So 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that by your spirit, you would use it to teach and rebuke and correct and train us in righteousness so that we would be equipped for every good work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you believe that it's already October? Where did September go? Where did the summer go? Before we know it, the holidays will be here. Someone said to me recently, the days are long, but the seasons are short. The days are long, but the seasons are short. Maybe that's how it feels to you. Maybe your days feel never-ending. It feels like the time to clock out will never come. It feels like the end of the school day buzzer is light years away. As a parent, I know that some days feel really, really long. But then, before we know it, a season has passed. Summer was a blur. Fall is here. Winter is around the corner. Before we know it, seasons and seasons of life come and go. The days are long, but the seasons are short. That saying is one one way that we're trying to make sense of this of the passing of time. We experience the passing of days, of seasons, of years. We all have this shared experience of something that we call time. And it passes, it comes and it goes. But God's experience of time is very different than ours. It's very different. Why is that? Why does it matter to you and me? That's what these verses are about. So with that in mind, let's turn to verse 8. Let me reread how this begins. Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Do not overlook. Peter actually uses the same word just a few verses earlier. If you have your Bibles, look, with, look back with me at verse 5. So this is chapter 3, verse 5. It begins this way. For they deliberately overlook this fact. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Peter uses the same verb, to overlook, to forget, to describe what scoffers do. This is what we talked about last time. The scoffers overlook the fact that God has intervened in history before now. He created the world. He destroyed it once in a flood. And he will destroy it again. But scoffers overlook this fact and deny Christ's return. He rebukes them in verse 5. Now, beginning in verse 8, Peter shifts his focus. 
he turns his attention away from the scoffers to the beloved. Now, recall that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter heard the Father say to the Son, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. He heard the Father say that. Now, once again, in this letter, Peter uses the same word, beloved, to refer to God's people. Peter has the audacity to call us the beloved, to call God's people the beloved, just like Jesus was called the beloved? Yes. Peter has the audacity because it's true. In Christ, we are the beloved. It's who we are. Peter writes to believers, to the beloved. He writes to us, to you and me. And he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. His command tells us something, and it's this. Even Christians have questions about Christ's return. Even Christians need reassurance that Christ will return just like he promised. Peter When he wrote this letter, he was writing to Christians who felt disappointed. They longed for Christ, but he didn't come. They longed for Christ and were troubled and confused by his absence. As days and months turned into years and decades, these believers wondered, is Jesus coming back after all? Maybe the scoffers are right. So Peter wrote to Christians who felt disappointed. But it could be that another word describes what you and I often feel. Like me, perhaps you don't feel as disappointed as you feel distracted. Are we so distracted by this world that Christ's absence makes no difference to us? He writes this letter to to Christians who were disappointed, troubled, confused. Is that us? It could be. But we could also be so distracted that we don't have room to be disappointed. Either way, whether we feel disappointed or distracted, Peter's words are for us. They're for you and me. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Do not overlook, do not forget, do not dismiss one fact. Okay, what is that fact, Peter? That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Think about one day. In one day, there are 24 hours. In one day, there are 86,400 seconds. We know what the passing of time feels like in a day. But with the Lord, what is it like? What is a day like? It's like a thousand years. Think about a thousand years. Do you remember what happened on October 10th, 1021? I don't either. (laughs) But it happened a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago. It's called a millennium. A thousand years. And what does a millennium feel like to God? Like one day. So this boggles our imaginations. If we really stop and think about it, it just boggles our minds. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. Friends, our God is not like us. Yes, he made us in his image, but he alone is God. 
So our God, our triune God, He is infinite. He is eternal. He is everlasting. He created time itself. Then he condescended. He came down to relate to us, to his image bearers in time. With these truths in mind, we confess with Peter that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We can't comprehend this fact. We never will. But it is one fact, Peter tells us, that we must not overlook. Do not forget, he's saying, do not forget that God's experience of time is very different than yours. It's very different than ours. What are days and years and millennia like to the eternal God? Peter urges us, he exhorts us to not overlook this one fact. But why is this one fact so important? Why is it so important? Why do we need to get this? Peter gives us the first implication in verse 9. Let me reread verse 9 for us. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Here, his promise, what does that refer to? It refers to the promise of Christ's return. Jesus hasn't yet returned, but that does not mean that God is slow to keep his word. Remember what Peter just said. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's not tardy. He's not late. He's not behind schedule. He's not delayed. He's not lagging behind or dragging his feet. His promise isn't belated or overdue. He's not all of those things. Okay, okay. if the Lord is not slow, then what is he? What is he? Millennia. Think about that. Millennia have come and gone, and Christ has still not yet returned. If the Lord is not slow, then what is he? He's patient. The Lord is patient. Each new day comes and it goes because the Lord is patient. Until Christ returns, each new day is another day of the Lord's patience. Today, October 10th, 2021, existed because the Lord is patient. Yesterday, October 9th, 2021, existed because the Lord is patient. Go back days. Go back years, centuries, millennia. Each of those days happened. Why? The Lord is not slow. No, those days and centuries and millennia happened because the Lord is patient. This makes me think of the Lord's patience toward me. In elementary school, the Spirit regenerated my heart and I put my faith in Christ. That was in elementary school. How should I think of all of those other days before my conversion? 
How should I think of all of those other days? For me, it was a shorter time. For some of you who are saved later in life, it was a longer time. How should I think of all of those other days before my conversion? They were days of the Lord being patient toward me. When I was his enemy, when I was dead in my sins, when I was a child of wrath with no loveliness to speak of, the Lord was patient toward me. Christians, remember your testimonies. Remember your testimony. At some moment, the Spirit regenerated your heart and you believed in Jesus, the crucified, risen, ascended Son of God. How should you think of all of those other days before your conversion? Before that moment, those were days of the Lord being patient toward you. What a glimpse, what a glimpse into the heart of our God. If you stop and think about it, it's really breathtaking. The Lord is patient toward you, toward me. This also means that the Lord is patient toward the unbelievers you love so dearly. Siblings, parents, children, friends, neighbors, co-workers, whoever it is, there are unbelievers in all of our lives who we love very much. It pains us. How can we really put it into words? But it pains us to see their ongoing life of rebellion and folly and futility. As you pray, as you evangelize, as you do all that you possibly can to lead your loved one to Christ, do not for a second doubt the character of your God. Don't doubt his character. The Lord is not unkind. He's not merciless, or unloving, or uncaring, or unconcerned, or impatient. No, until Christ returns, each new day testifies to what? To the Lord's patience. The Lord is patient. He's patient toward your loved ones. He's patient toward those people you are trying to lead to Christ. He is patient. Do you believe that? You should. The Lord is patient. Patient. No one, please listen, no one desires anyone's salvation more than God himself. No one desires anyone's salvation more than God himself. Listen to these astounding words in verse 9. Listen again. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord does not wish that any should perish. He wishes that all should reach repentance. No one desires anyone's salvation more than God himself. There is no exception. There is no exception here. God wishes that all should be saved. God wishes, God wants, God desires the salvation of every single person. And when I say every person, I mean just that. Every person, no exceptions. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God desires that everyone should be saved? Yes. At some point, maybe at this point, some questions might be coming to your minds. 
Maybe. One of them is probably this. Can we say, can we say that God desires salvation for all people when we know that he elects salvation only for some? Let me say that again. Can we say that God desires salvation for all people without exception if we also know that he elects salvation only for some? Our Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes the Bible's teaching in this way. It says, by the decree of God, and we'll come back and use that word, decree, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and we could say some women and boys and girls and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. In other words, God sovereignly and graciously chooses to save some, but not all. Can we then say that God also desires the salvation of all people? Yes, we can. We affirm both the decree of God and the desire of God. We're going to use those two words, decree and desire. We affirm both, both God's decree of salvation to save some and God's desire of salvation for all. We affirm both. It's both and, not either or. We get into trouble when we make it either or. Christians get into trouble when they affirm either God's decree or his desire. So Christians get into trouble if they say, well, it's either or. So, for example, some Christians will affirm, the, will affirm God's decree of salvation for some. They will affirm that. But then they will try to explain away clear biblical truth, like 2 Peter 3.9. They'll try to explain it away, saying, well, God doesn't really desire the salvation of all people. Other Christians will affirm God's desire of salvation for all. They will celebrate that truth, but then they will try to explain away clear biblical teaching in places like Romans 9 and many, many other places. They'll say, well, God doesn't really decree the salvation of all people. Or, sorry, he doesn't really decree the salvation of some people. He really doesn't do that. But it's both and. Not either or. We're on safe biblical ground when we affirm both truths. God decrees salvation for some, and he desires salvation for all. But isn't that a contradiction? Is that a contradiction? No, it's not. And here's why. From our perspective, and that's important, those words, from our perspective, it seems like, it seems like God has two wills. He's, he, he decrees salvation for some, he desires salvation for all. Well, that's, that's two wills. It seems like he decrees one thing and desires another. That's from our perspective. From our perspective. To us, God's will appears complex and twofold. But to God, his will is not complex, but simple. To God, his will is not twofold, but one. One will. How can this be? 
friends, it's not for us to know. We won't know. We began, remember, we began by reflecting on the eternal God who relates to his people in time. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Here, once again, what's happening? We're bumping up against Christian mystery. We're bumping up against Christian mystery, not not a mystery novel kind of mystery, but biblical Christian mystery, something that we can't understand, we can't comprehend. And the proper response is not to fight it, but to bow down and worship. Is it true that God decrees the salvation of some? Yes, it is. Is it also true that God desires the salvation of all? Yes, it is. And John Calvin says, these statements agree perfectly with each other. They're in perfect agreement. So this verse, 2 Peter 3.9, is not a verse for us to shy away from. It's not a verse for us to hide away. No, this is a verse for us to champion. This is, for, this is a verse for us to gladly herald. The Lord does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We believe that. Now let me remind you of where we started. Peter reminded us, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The first implication is this, verse 9, until Christ returns, the Lord is patient. Second implication in verse 10 is this, Christ's return is always imminent. So it might be helpful to think, the Lord is patient, the return is imminent. There are the two implications. So verse 10, let me reread this once again. Verse 10, the second implication of of Verse 8, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Whoa. We won't expect it. That's exactly the point. It will come like a thief. We all know the folly, the foolishness of setting dates for Christ's return. We all know that you just can't do that. Not only Christ knows the day when he will return. How can we say that we know the date? We all know of these infamous predictions of Christ's return. It will happen on this date. And of course, those predictions crash and burn. Christ will come like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. But I think there's there's still a subtle temptation for us. There's still a subtle temptation. We know the obvious thing. Okay, this obvious date setting. No, that's wrong. I think there's still a subtle temptation for us. And it is to interpret current events as signs of Christ's imminent return. There's the subtle temptation for us. We hear about China and COVID-19 
and Afghanistan and natural disasters. And we say, look at these signs. Surely Christ is coming back really soon. He's going to, it's, in our generation, who could question? He's definitely going to come back in ours. There's a temptation for us. We might lean in and listen to people who are saying that. Look at these current events. Aren't those signs? But let me remind you, the signs that Jesus himself predicted, wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution, false Christs, all of those things and more, these signs have been evident throughout all of church history. All of church history. The Bible isn't specific enough for us to say, these are the signs. You see the headlines? The Bible is not specific enough for us to say, see, these are the signs of Christ's return. His return is, is really, really soon. The Bible doesn't give us that. No, Jesus says, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the point is that we won't expect it. It will be unexpected. Woe will be the, will be the response. Yeah, I think that's a subtle temptation for us. This reminds us, Peter reminds us, God's word reminds us, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We won't expect it. We won't. But we can expect several things. We can expect several things. When Jesus returns, first, the heavens will pass away with a roar. This roar doesn't refer to the roar of a lion or to a bear or something else like that. It refers to the roar of a fire. A fire that consumes the spiritual realms that we can't even see. A huge, huge fire. The heavens will pass away with a roar. When Jesus returns, Peter says, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The word translated heavenly bodies could be referring to the sun, moon, stars, planets, galaxies. It could also be referring to the basic elements of our world. Air, fire, water, earth. Either way, Peter's point is clear. All of it will literally go up in flames. The heavenly bodies, the elements, will be burned up and dissolved. Finally, When Jesus returns, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. A final judgment is coming for all unbelievers. A day is coming when God will expose all things, all things, and execute his judgment. It's a day when every unbeliever will try to run and hide, but in vain. As the book of Revelation says, they will call to the mountains... They will call to the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? When all works are exposed, every deed, every thought, every desire, when all of it is exposed, who can stand? The 
Apostle John goes on in the book of Revelation to say this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. What are they doing? They're standing. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So who will stand on that day? Who will stand when the day of the Lord comes? Brothers and sisters, we will stand on that day. We will stand not clothed in our righteousness, but Christ's. And we will proclaim that salvation is not ours, never was. No, it belongs to God and to the Lamb. Until that day comes, until that day comes, there is a fact that we must not forget. We need to be reminded of it. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is patient, and His return is always imminent. Beloved, may we live accordingly.